I'm Michael McKenzie. Welcome to RN First Bite. And here's a question to raise some hackles. Does cooking matter? I think I know Sally Wise's answer. Right, well, first of all, about that fruit, you have to be careful that it's as fresh as possible. It's no good making jam with fruit that's been off its bushes, off the tree for ages because it has no pectin level to speak of left in it. You need that to make your jam set. You can hear how much love Sally invests in making jam, and she'll be back later, but does cooking matter in a mining town like Broken Hill? What I like to do is just dip a little bit here and put it on the back of my hand. It's the volatile chemicals that... That's released by your body heat. I can tell you for that local doctor, those volatile chemicals he loves so much are not silver, lead or zinc. More on that later. But as to does cooking matter, my immediate response was, of course it bloody does. Don't be ridiculous. There's nothing to see here. Move on. However, there's strong indications that for large swathes of our population, cooking, in fact, doesn't matter. And that for some people, they'd rather do anything else, even if it means cleaning the toilet. That's just part of the findings underlying a new quarterly essay come book written by social researcher, author and broadcaster Dr Rebecca Huntley. And Rebecca, you begin with a quote from renowned cook and writer Elizabeth David about a festive meal so many of us dread. (laughs) Yes, the Christmas lunch. I think that what was interesting to me is she said, look, you know, even though Christmas Day is a, you know, a, a time where everybody loves food and they have all these rituals and memories around it, for the person who's responsible for putting it on the table, it's an extraordinary effort. And then they have to get up the next day and do it again. She says she would just love Christmas Day as a kind of, you know, scrambled eggs and champagne in bed. That's her perfect Christmas Day. And I think what I like about this and what I, I try and talk about throughout the book is that. For a lot of people, cooking is a chore, but it doesn't have to be one in which they dread all the time. And it's not also one where we have to turn them into foodies. We have to turn them into people with, you know, a million cookbooks who, you know, watch all the shows and, you know, know about all the food trends. So in this first answer, you've already addressed the opening question, really, isn't (laughs) it? As far as you're concerned, cooking does matter. But isn't there a case to be put that you could actually construct a dwelling in inner city Australia and never have to put in a kitchen. Oh, I think that's right. And we already know that that's happening or that there are, you know, apartments and, you know, with scaled down kitchens. And in the research that I conduct into Australians and cooking, I meet people who basically don't even know how to turn on their oven, rarely even use the stovetop and survive with a kettle and a microwave. So how do you convince them, if they've already made those choices, that cooking does matter? I think it's difficult. I think the first thing is that often the people whose approach to cooking is that approach are people who live alone and they can be all kinds of ages you know recently did a a study on people over 50 50 60s 70s and 80s and how they cook often living alone that is associated with less consumption of fruit and vegetables more of a reliance on pre-prepared foods it's when it's one person's responsibility day in day out that it kind of sucks any of the joy (laughs) out of cooking and in one of the other studies that we did around how people look at food across the week is that the most disinterested and disengaged with cooking, the act of cooking, the people who hated it the most were women over 50, regardless of socioeconomic background or or anything. And for me, that says these are women who have cooked their whole life and it's been mainly their responsibility to cook for, you know, fussy children and perhaps ungrateful partners. And after doing that for 10, 20, 30 years, they really, and they've said... I'd hate it too, you know. You would. It's loathsome. 
That's right. And they say to me, I would rather clean the toilet or the moment my kids left the home, I was happy to have a boiled egg and toast every night for the rest of my life rather than think about cooking. And I think this is what's interesting. One of the things I have found is that either their husband starves, (laughs) they get a divorce, or he decides to learn how to cook, which is one of the reasons why you'll find in cooking classes and and, uh, classes around cooking skills, you'll find a lot of empty nester men who've suddenly said, well, my wife's overcooking, doesn't want to do it anymore, and so I've got a bit more time to do it. Let's define some terms here. How do you define cooking? I remember once doing a Thai cooking course with a, you know, esteemed uh, chef who said that you couldn't really say that you were uh, good at Thai cooking unless you made your coconut milk from scratch. And here's the expensive machine and it takes three days. And I was like, oh, God, I'm never going to be able to do that. (laughs) So I actually don't think relying on some pre-prepared ingredients is really the problem. It's about understanding what it takes to make those ingredients so you can make better decisions. So really it's good. the alchemy. Are you saying that exactly. as long as there's, there's some kind of choice you're reigning over in terms exactly. of what goes in, what goes out, what ingredients are used or not used, then that would be the act of cooking, wouldn't it? I think that's right. Good example, you know, tomato sauce, so what Americans would call tomato ketchup. Unless you've made it from scratch, which I've done various times, you actually don't realise how much sugar can be in commercial versions of tomato ketchup. You might think that you can slather it on stuff and it's absolutely fine. Similarly with pastry, there's a whole range of things. So I think if you do know what it's like to cook from scratch and you've done it, it does equip you to make better decisions about the pre-prepared food that you might rely on. And I suppose the other part of the book, which I feel confident about but still a little wary about saying is that every time you go out to a restaurant or every time you buy a takeaway you're depriving yourself as a, of an opportunity to learn how to cook and the more that you rely on it the more you de-skill yourself and one of the findings that fascinated me is the more takeaway the more eating out somebody did the less likely they were to agree with the statement there is too much fat and sugar in the western diet and the less likely they were concerned about portion control. So it's those kinds of things that we know are are at the centre of why we have an obesity problem in Australia. The more you eat out, the less likely you are to think that those things are a problem. And in that research, uh, which was with about 3,000 Australians as a sample over the age of 18, there is a schism, isn't there, between how we think we want food to be when we put it in our mouths and how much we really check that that's the case. I think that's right. I remember one guy saying to me, you know, if I go to the supermarket, I, I check the salt and fat in, in the things that I buy. If it's fresh fruit and vegetables, I check if they're grown in Australia. Uh, I often buy organic. But he says, when I go to a restaurant, I never ask any of those questions. I mean, when's the last time you went to a Thai restaurant and asked somebody how much sugar is in the pad Thai, how much salt? Risotto is a perfect example. If you haven't made risotto from scratch and you have it in a restaurant compared to when you have it at home, you, you know the difference. You know how much butter you have to put into it and other kinds of things to make it as beautiful as it is in a restaurant. So I think that making those things from scratch, not all the time, but enough of the time, it gives you a kind of an education that helps you make choices when you're not at home. What about the signs of hope amongst the next generation that they will value food to cook it more because they grow it, like Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation that's now in something like 480 schools across the nation. And hasn't the monitoring of that scheme by researchers proven that it's actually helping to change attitudes and behaviour both at home and at school? 
Yeah, look, I think this is is wonderful. I'm a big fan of the what the foundation does. But I, I use the example of something like Harry Potter, which when Harry Potter kind of arrived, everybody thought there's going to be a whole generation of excited young people, boys and girls, who are going to grow up reading. The sudden surge in literacy. Exactly. And that hasn't panned out exactly as people have thought. Only really robust longitudinal studies can work out whether those kinds of things have a huge effect. Because, of course, the other thing, the countervailing influence there has been the rise of technology and all, all kinds of other things that have kind of undermined uh, our book reading skills. The convenience foods of reading. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, <laughs> so I think with this, we, you know, time will tell about whether the kids who learn how to, you know, grow silver beet and cook with it are going to be doing that 10 or 15 years later. And the real test will be, will the boys keep doing it when they're in their late teens and early 20s and when they have their first child? Because one of the things, again, we find in our research is that when a couple move in, there's often a bit of you know general equality about who does what around the house, and that includes things like cooking. The moment the first and the second kid arrive, that there's that readjustment because it's often the woman who takes that time off work and she becomes the person who comes home, picks the kids up and comes home early. Are those boys of that MasterChef, you know, Stephanie Alexander generation still going to be interested in cooking, still keep up those skills 15 years later? And that's less to do with education and much more to do with social change. Rebecca Huntley's dissertation come book, Does Cooking Matter?, is published by Penguin, and she and I have agreed to catch up again in 15 years to see if those boys have retained the skills and the desire to keep making meals using fresh food they might have grown themselves. You may also recall that one of the arguments Rebecca put for cooking your own food is it helps you understand what's inside the commercial version. Take, for example, jam. Sally Wise is our resident cook, writer and farmer. And Sally, where does that story of a fruit spread actually begin? Well, actually, Michael can be traced back to the Middle East. The very first cookbook written was written by a Roman, and that had a recipe in it for jam, several in fact. And, and from there, it's believed that Crusaders um, first introduced jam into broader Europe, and by the late Middle Ages, jam had become very popular indeed. All right, well, now let's jump into the 21st century. I have my fruit, I have my sugar. Right, well, first of all, about that fruit, you have to be careful that it's as fresh as possible. It's no good making jam with fruit that's been off its bushes, off the tree for ages because it has no pectin level to speak of left in it. You need that to make your jam set. So you get good quality fruit, some very fresh fruit, I hope, because it needs to be very fresh, not long picked. And so what you need to do is just to combine the fruit and the sugar. First of all, you need to cook the fruit just until it's soft, and that certainly doesn't take long with berries. Just do that over a low heat until the juices flow, and then you add your sugar, stir it until the sugar's dissolved. And and do we need pound for pound? Is that what it needs to be? Well, in this day and age, people are scandalised by that somewhat, but you really do need to if you want your jam to keep satisfactorily. You can cut it back to maybe 66%, I've been told, but then you stand the risk that it won't keep nearly so well. So the old pound for pound is a good rule of thumb. I never knew that sugar could be such a preservative. I knew about salt and vinegar. I never knew sugar was one of those as well. Yes, because bacteria finds it very difficult to live in sugar, as indeed it does in vinegar, because that's acid and salt, because that creates a very unfriendly environment as well. What else is going into that mixture? 
You can put in, if you want to, a little acid because that helps to boost the pectin level in your fruit. But you must put that in right at the beginning because that helps to extract the pectin a bit too late once you put the sugar in. And why should I make jam in small batches? Well, when you have larger batches, like I would never go for more than 1.5 kilos of fruit because if you go larger, then you're going to have to boil the jam for longer. And what happens when you do that? The sugar starts to caramelise and then that's the flavour you get. You don't want to have that. You really want the flavour of the fruit to shine through, not that sugar. So if you do it in small amounts, you can keep an eye on all that. And how long should I be boiling for? I don't like to boil a jam for more than about 20 minutes and again the smaller batches is the factor that comes into play here. If you had a bigger batch you're going to have to boil it for about 40 or more so 20 minutes should be about the maximum you want to boil it. And is there any fruits that are a no-no when it comes to making jam? No, not really. You can make jams with any type of fruit, but some are low in pectin. For instance, mulberries and sweet cherries, oh my goodness, they can be very difficult to get a jam to set. And sometimes, though, if you combine it with a higher pectin fruit like apple, that will help to get it to set. Okay, so let's say I've got everything right. It's looking like it's about to set. What happens now? Okay, if you think it's starting to get to the point of setting, say it's been boiling for 15 minutes, and you'll know when that time's getting close because the bubbles get bigger. They start out quite small, big as a pinhead, and then they start to look like boiling mud. Then take it off the heat and put some of the mixture, maybe three teaspoons on a cold saucer and pop it into the fridge. Now when that's cold, after a couple of minutes, pull it out of the fridge or freezer, pull your finger through it and then if it wrinkles on the top, your jam should set. And then how do we make sure that everything's sterilised, ready for preserving for a while? If you're reusing jars, then you need to scrub them, make sure they're very clean, rinse them, pop them in the oven, into a cold oven, once they're drained of course, and turn your oven on to 100 degrees and then wait till it comes up to that temperature. You can turn it off then, leave the jars there for about 10 minutes, and they'll be sterilised. Straight into the jars. And what do you put across the top along with the screw cap? I should mention that the jam should go into the jars hot, boiling hot. And then on the top, well, there's several options. You can buy special cellophane papers. I never had much success with those because they slip off but you can buy all sorts of lid screw topped ones you can sometimes use uh, clip top jars as well so there's a wide variety out there personally i favor the metal lids with the plastic coating on the inside they're certainly the best your favorite jam raspberry can't go past raspberry jam Mm, yum sally wise thank you very much it's a pleasure You can find Sally's tips on making jam in more detail on the website. Just put RN First Bite into your search engine and away you go. And if you'd like to add to Sally's words of wisdom on jammy do's and don'ts, please don't hold back. There's a comment section under the story online. You're listening to RN First Bite. I'm Michael McKenzie. There was a family whose old grandfather used to look after the tree beautifully and when he died... We gave them a bottle with his picture on it and they just loved it and sure enough when Grandma died we did the same. I'm not in Greece. This is Broken Hill, a New South Wales city that operates on South Australian time where a generation ago post-war migrants arrived with hope in their hearts and a few seeds in their pockets. 70 years later and those seeds have grown and the trees? The trees are olives. The idea was, of course, when you bought your first house, 
you planted grapevine for your son. But here they recognised that grapevines wouldn't suit it, so they planted olive trees for their grandchildren. And here's, here's a couple out the there's front of one. some houses here. That house was originally owned by Emmanuel Shembury, a Maltese fella. It's now a boarding house, uh, and his son looks after it. But that's a beautiful olive tree that we pick every year. My guide is Steve Flecknoe-Brown, local doctor, pathologist and founding chairman of the Silver City's Olive Oil Co-op, a community organisation that for more than a decade has been harvesting fruit from the trees scattered through the streets and backyards of Broken Hill. The oil that we make from the heritage, what we call the heritage trees, because it is part of the heritage of this town, a very important part of the multicultural heritage of one of the world's first multicultural cities. You know, we've still got people here with Afghani surnames and faces, and you can see that they're direct descendants of the original Afghan camel drivers. So this is a multicultural town, and so things like this are a very important part of the heritage of this town. So we call them the heritage trees and we pick them when they're ready and we make a label called Urban Agriculture. When I first told the New South Wales Minister for uh, Agriculture about this, he said, what? What's this urban agriculture business? There's no such thing. I said, well, <laughs> 20% of the world's population is fed from it. It's green because people don't poison their own backyards. It's 50% more productive per hectare than broadacre. And how come you hadn't heard about it? Well, you hadn't. Steve has picked me up from Broken Hills Railway Station, which lies in the shadow of a huge slag heap. We drive up Crystal Street, between the tracks and some low-slung miners' cottages, made of iron and old brick. And then as the railway line goes under the road, Steve pulls onto a dirt track leading to a grove of olives, planted on what looks like wasteland. About four years into the project... Ian Plymer, the technical director of CBH Resources, was aware of what we were doing and said, look, we've got a plot of land here that we've got a regeneration order on, but we can't do anything with it because we're miners, not farmers. Are you interested in planting olives here? We said, yeah, why not? He said, I've got to warn you, it used to be a a, a tailings dam. It's got a fair bit of lead in it, you know. I said, well... That's not going to matter because we're only ever going to make oil out of these and and salts don't dissolve in oil. Well, it took about a half an inch of his beer and half an inch of my beer to work out that I was right. (laughs) And four years later, when when we produced our first commercial harvest from these trees, we sent it away to the Wagga Wagga Department of Primary Industry for them to make extra virgin grade olive oil out of it and then to test the oil for 25 heavy metals not a touch of one in any of So this grove that we're now seeing in front of us is a result of all that and this is now the commercial arm of what began as a co-op, is that right? Oh yes, it's still still a co-op, true to our intentions at the beginning. We will return a dividend to our shareholders, yes. And what's good about this is that instead of costing the mine money, we are making money out of it. And this is something which every mine that has to somehow or other rehabilitate heavy metal contaminated soil can look at. Get someone like us in and we'll make money whereas they don't have to spend anything. We've got a a lease here that says you can use this land and you can have the effluent water with which we feed the trees for as long as there are olive trees in the ground. That's at least a 2,000 year lease. 
No charge. Let's have a look. Okay. The original compact that you had with the community on, on the basis of the olive harvest, I think, was to give every person who had an olive tree in their environs a bottle a year. Yeah, in principle, in principle. And, and there's a fella up the road who's got, he's got about 50 trees, so we, we gave him a bottomless bottle. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's a bottle per tree, not just a bottle. Oh, in principle. Right. We give them back something that says, here's something you can take pride in, instead of something that's sitting in the backyard producing stuff that falls drops on off, the ground, falls yeah. on the ground and gets trudged in and ruins the carpet. Now you've got something you can be proud of. Yeah. And so this two hectares, is it? Two and a half, yeah. Two and a half hectares it's, is producing uh, how many bottles? Oh, look, it, it's, it's variable every year. And last year we had a, a disaster because a week before harvest, there was a wonderful uh, drop of rain and all the fruit swelled beautifully, took up the water and dropped. We should have got about 250 litres of oil from, from here last year, but we only got 120. And this year we'd probably expect double that again. And where does that oil go? Ah, well, we have a premium label... Uh, that's this one. And why is this one called a premium label? Because we entered it into an international show. In fact, three years running, we entered it into the International Taste and Quality Institute Superior Taste Awards in Brussels. We didn't go for an Australian one. We went for the... For the <laughs> so you for went the to the top. And we got two stars out of three every year. Every year we were in it. It's a classic story of the mouse that roared. But how does a community co-op have the wherewithal to make olive oil that receives such high international ratings, especially when it's grown on rehabilitated mining sites. Steve Flecknoe-Brown has a few ideas, and you'll hear his background in pathology start to really kick in here. We start processing within a couple of hours of picking the fruit, and every bit of fruit that we pick during the harvest is processed within 24 hours, or it may be the particular process we use. We bought a small mill because this is a relatively small grove and the mill we use very gently grinds the oil and so there's, there's no heat generated and no pressure on the... So whatever aroma and flavour was in there is retained as it goes through the press. But when you make extra virgin olive oil, there are two things that can spoil it. One is hydrolysis by fungi. If you leave the fruit out for more than 48 hours before it's put into the mill, the, the fungi will punch holes into it and start to hydrolyse the oil and you'll get free fatty acids, and that is a marker. Yeah, we used to say just by taste, but now we've got very precise scientific measurements and, and the definition of extra virgin olive oil is, is no longer the time the donkey took to, to get it round the wheelstone. <laughs> um, it's uh, less than 0.001% free fatty acids, and we always make that. All right, come on now, the proof of the oil is in the taste. Yes, it is, yes. it is. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take you back to my place. Lovely. Interestingly, the bulk of our oil actually goes to a large restaurant chain in Sydney. Exclusively if, to them? Yes, yes, they, uh, they love the oil, and they said, we will use this exclusively for our finishing oil. Uh, you, know, you know the concept of finishing oil? No. At the end of the dish, when it's ready to go out, you put it just a, a little drizzle over it. Just to flavour the dish? Well, it, the, the aroma, which you'll smell in, in a moment, various sterols and, and flavouring compounds are heated up and they add enormously to the flavour of the dish. You'll see the front of my place is uh, being turned into an olive grove as well. Oh, so you're terracing at the moment? That's right. And my little friend, the cat, is going to greet you. OK. Hello. This is Mr Tuppence. Hello, Mr Tuppence. 
Here we go. You see, I've got a little bit of this. Steve's pouring it out onto the white plate. Here we go. Uh, just got a little bit of sediment left. That's all right. But I kind of like see that. the richness of the colour. Oh, I love that. And uh, cop this. All right. So Steve's torn off some bread for dipping. Okay. What I like to do is just dip a little bit here and put it on the back of my hand. Right. And that gives you the aroma because your body oh, heat, yes. your, your body releases heat again, it. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it becomes volatile. Well, it is. It's the volatile. The volatile chemicals that yes. that's released by your body heat. Oh, that smells fantastic. It does, doesn't it? Oh, here we yeah. go. It's got a great strength to it, but it's not overpowering. And floral. Very mm. floral. The oils that we get from the trees down in Menindi, mm. which are on the river flats, right. are more uh, grassy and herbaceous. Huh. And you can tell the difference. This this tells you the this gives you an idea of what difference the, the soil makes. This is mineral rich soil, whereas the soil at Menindi has got lots of organic in it, but it's it's alluvial soil and it's it's yeah. got much less minerals. Menindi oil, broken hill oil, it's all good eating and of course the restaurant in Sydney that has this exclusive contract with you was laughing all the way to the to well, the client. They like the product and they like the story. And we've been supplying them for three years now. Well, I like the oil and I love the story too. So, Steve Fleckner-Brown, thank you so much indeed. Oh, my pleasure. Just before I go, a quick letter from Christine, who heard my reports from on board the Indian Pacific, and she thinks she knows why the Nullarbor town of Cook is almost deserted. Could I suggest that it may have declined as a result of the Fettler's camps along the line closing down? These small sidings were established for the workers to maintain the track. Once the sleepers were replaced, the number of men needed for maintenance dropped. How do I know all this? I worked as a child health nurse for the infamous tea and sugar train in the early 70s. This train took about three days to get from Port Pirie to Cook. We provided a health service for the families living in these fettler's camps. My mouth waters when I think of the wonderful saltbush mutton introduced to me by the butcher, who I might add thought wine was for use girls. He was a rum man, but he knew how to butcher a beast beautifully. In those trips, that rum bottle never seemed to empty. Not once did he ever ask for a band-aid. Thank you, Christine. Next time, I pretend to be a Japanese flour miller as I engage in the serious science of udon noodles and how crowd-funded seaweed science could revolutionise our national diet. Technical producer is Mark Veer. I'm Michael McKenzie. I'll catch you next time.